Welcome to Backyard Philosophy, a podcast where a couple friends grab some cold ones, sit around the fire, and talk about science, philosophy, and history. Crack one open, sit back, and get a good laugh as we discuss everything from automation to why the meaning of life is 42. What spends its entire life going uphill only to get screwed and die? The salmon. It looks like they're getting screwed over again. Today we're going to be talking about salmon and how the population is slowly decreasing. But before we get into that, Nick, how you doing and what are you drinking? Doing pretty good. Happy to be talking about fish, drinking some real good summer ale because I bought it because there's a guy fishing on the can and I am that guy. So easily manipulated. What about you? What are you drinking? I am uh, drinking a screwdriver. I have vodka I need to get rid of, so screwdriver it is. Well, we're going to start talking about how does a salmon become a salmon. So for those of you who don't know, salmon are Andromedas. It's when a mama bird and a daddy bird. <laughs> salmon are Andromedas, Andromedas fish. They sw- they spend some of their lives in the river, in freshwater, some of their lives in the ocean, in saltwater. So the salmon start out as eggs. For this purpose, the egg came first. They start out as eggs way up in the rivers. Each salmon can lay thousands of eggs, but or generally anywhere between 500 to 1,200 of those eggs. Only about 20 to 100 of those eggs are actually going to become young salmon called fry. And I'm sure, for those of you who don't know, male Female salmon will swim up on a nest, lay all her eggs out, and the male salmon will fertilize all the eggs. And so not every egg gets fertilized, which is why there's such a huge difference between number of eggs laid versus number of eggs that survive. Yes, and to bring it up with eggs and fry, if you say, for an example, you had 2,000 eggs, only about 200 fry will make it to that stage from 2,000 eggs. Like, small small chance of survival. Yep, and then... So once the the eggs hatch, quote unquote, they uh they become alvin, which is basically like the tadpole version of a fish. Um, they still they can't swim very well, and they still have a lot of that nutrients from the egg attached to them, so they can kind of move around. And so that's when they first start becoming fish. And then once they deplete their nutrients and, and start eating, they become fry, which then now they actually look like fish, and they're most people look at these fish and just be like, oh, those are minnows. You know, it's really small, not probably not even an inch long fish, but they're baby salmon. And they eat insects and whatever other kind of food they can find. And they fight each other for, for food because that's how nature works. I think it's important to note that also, just like any small baby animal, there are a lot of predators in the world. So they are susceptible to getting snatched up, eaten by larger animals. Yep. And these uh, fry, they'll sit out in their whatever river they were born in for some per a year, some less and some per up to three years before heading out into the ocean. Cause they want to be, by the time they hit the ocean, they got to be pretty strong because it's an entirely different set of rules out there. Once the fry move into the estuaries where the fresh water and the salt water meet, they become smolts. And so they're a little bit bigger. That's when they get that silvery sheen, when they start heading out into the, the salt water and 
they just start adjusting. You can't you can't just go from completely fresh to completely salt water. So they acclimate in the salt water in the estuaries. The best way I could understand smolts because I'm not as familiar with fish is simply the juvenile stage for salmon. Yeah, your your teenage salmon. Then finally, once they get out in the oceans, that's when they're adults or mature. And depending on the species, they'll stay in the salt water for six months to five years, some longer. And they eat pretty much anything other fish do. They eat shrimp, squid, other fish, anything they can get their hands on. And they'll travel all over the place. So the salmon on the Pacific coast will swim all the way to Japan and back. And somehow they, they find their way back to the to the rivers. A lot of people think that they use, they have basically compasses, they have magnets, and they're using the Earth's magnetic field to get back to where they're going. Once they get close enough, they can use their sense of smell, but I just can't imagine that a fish can be in Japan and be like, oh, what is that smell? That smelly smell. That, that's the Columbia River Basin. Like that, that just seems like a stretch. How... How many humans do you think it would take to, if you gave each one of them a compass until they could actually make it back to cross that much land of, like, openness and danger? <laughs> it is impressive what those salmon can do. Every salmon that comes back has survived, right? So we talked salmon for being pretty decent-sized fish. They have a lot of predators, especially out in the ocean. There's always a bigger fish. Yeah, I think it's also important to note they're not just on the Pacific Coast. They're... Found in a lot of places uh, here in the United States, mainly the Northwest and Northeast, but Norway, like Nick said, Japan, salmon are versatile creatures. And from what I could tell Nick, and correct me if I'm wrong, they like the cold water more than the warm water. Yeah. So once, I think it's species dependent, but once the water reaches a certain point, then they can't spawn and their chances of spawning are significantly reduced if, if it gets too warm. So certain places like there's a, in California, they use dams high up to release only cold water so they release only the water from the bottom of the lake and that cools everything down so that the fish can swim up the river well before we get back to dams i I would like to hear how salmon that somehow have a magnetic compass in their skull to go from japan all the way back home just to i imagine to re, re re begin the journey which they started yeah, so once they get back to the river, they get into the estuary and they just pretty much start swimming upriver and they're heading back to where they were born using their sense of smell. And it's amazing how much ground these things can cover. And when this isn't a steelhead podcast, but we were uh, we were fishing for steelhead with my dad and he caught one about if you drove from the river mouth to where we were be like an hour 45 and it still had sea lice on it which means it had been in that river for less than 24 hours during winter so that stream's barreling down like the amount of muscles and strength to swim up that far is incredible but uh so they swim up river and they don't eat they all that time they spend out in the ocean they use that energy they store it inside them because once they hit that fresh water they stop eating they're basically just a missile heading straight to spawn and this it's kind of interesting because for those of you who don't fish 
how do you fish for something that doesn't eat? Well, people think, that, and this is debated, but what I think makes the most sense is you fish with patterns that look like fish that are trying to eat your eggs or salmon will eat competing eggs. And so you fish with something that elicits a reaction. And so that reaction, that defense reaction is why they bite. It's not because they're eating, they're just defending their territory. They're getting rid of competitive eggs because they want their eggs to survive. Other people think that it's just a reaction of if you can make it look enough like something they eat out in the ocean, when they see it, it just triggers a memory and they just react. So I don't know which, which one's right or wrong, but just kind of something interesting to think about. I've also seen people fish with nets because like you said, Nick, salmon are strong creatures. Not only are they swimming upstream, but sometimes they're jumping. They're, you've probably seen photos of or videos of it, of a salmon jumping over a smaller bank or a small little ridge to make it more upstream. To do that is so impressive. To jump more than your entire body height while swimming upstream after you've been swimming for days and hours across the ocean, that's... I can't fathom how much strength that takes to muster if a human was going to try something, anything equal to. So that'd be like jumping. So if you're a 16 inch salmon and you jump 10 feet, that's like jumping a 13 or 13 times your, uh, your length. So that's like, if you're a human and say you're five, like six feet tall, jumping 70 something feet. I, that, you're Superman at that point. You can, jump a tiny skyscraper at that point that i just oh god salmon are such fascinating creatures because of their striving i guess so because even even if they make it all the way upstream past the bears the eagles the fishermen it doesn't end well for the salmon after they make it all the way back home nick so once they make it all the way back home swim hundreds of miles if not i don't know what the longest is but think it to get into idaho it's like the far it's like 900 miles or something some of these salmon spawn then you lay your eggs or fertilize your eggs and and then you just start decaying you just start dying they don't swim back out they just that's it it's a one and done i mean at that point they're just so exhausted from everything else they're like you know what i'm good <laughs> i did my job adios yep and once once they do die then everything starts eating them like you know the bears eagles it's uh they provide an important source of nutrients for that area. Yes, and uh, I think it's important to note that the population isn't decreasing currently because salmon population, if people didn't know, is decreasing. Isn't because the bears, the eagles, oh my, it they are tough, hardy creatures. But a lot of factors are playing in. But just alone to survive all of that, Nick, to could you imagine swimming out to sea, surviving the deep ocean then coming back and having to jump around grizzly bears just to pass on your genetics what uh, <laughs> the mindset of that fish is be like just keep swimming just keep swimming yeah i mean it's just uh they're pretty pretty aggressive fish i mean that they, they some they have a lot of endearing nicknames for fishermen so like so depending on when they come back in certain areas but i've heard them called uh like summer hogs before like they're just tanks <laughs> that's a new one for me at least steelhead some people uh, they come back in the summer they'll call them like silver footballs just 
<laughs> there's uh they're definitely pound for pound I, I one of the the better fighting fish and people love them culturally yeah i mean you see salmon murals all over oregon and washington like it's just uh symbolic with the area i guess lewis and clark talk about eating them that's just not the united states either it's all across the world if i believe correctly if I remember uh ireland has its own ancient salmon uh god from back in the days when they were uh celtic tribes i salmon is important for many cultures because so many food nutrients i mean for the native americans in both the canadian area and the america it's big that's i mean livelihood like you said nick tons and tons of nutrients and ingredients of in it not just the fatty fish oils but just the amount of protein in a salmon Oof. again they're they're pretty big fish you, you can eat pretty well yeah that's uh Man, um, I forget exactly where, but I forget how, how like, 24-something people are traveling with Lewis and Clark, and they hadn't eaten for, like, four days or something. And these guys went and caught three salmon, brought three salmon back, took them, like, another day or something to get back, so they're rotten by the time they got back to the main camp and everyone, and it was enough to sustain 24 people, three rotten fish. That's absolutely incredible. And Nick, since you kind of mentioned it, I don't know if you want to continue with that. You mentioned uh, lice, sea lice, on the fishing when you and your dad went out fishing. And I saw that as a huge problem, which is not, I feel, getting the attention that it deserves that it's affecting the salmon community. Um, I was going to maybe start with eggs and then work through each stage, the problems. All right, let's go for it. So... This could be a problem with the beginning or the the end of the life cycle, but during the like 30s, 40s, early like a uh, settling of the West, the easiest way to get logs to market was to dam up the rivers, make giant well dams, obviously, and then they'd break them or they had a release, they'd blow them up with dynamite, either or, and then send all the logs downriver once they had it filled up. Year after year of doing this eroded away all the stream banks and so a lot of rivers in the pacific northwest are left with a just a rock bottom like not river rock just bedrock and the eggs need some sort of gravel to latch onto so to help stay in place and so they don't get tore up and the salmon will actually kind of make their own little uh nests kind of just like you know if you look off a dock you'll probably see some bluegill or bass nests or something just little circles that the fish make but um so you'll see if you ever out in the woods you'll, they're calling weirs and it's basically just a collection of rocks or something that stops the flow of the water and allows gravel to pile up behind it and pretty much 90 percent of spawning salmon will spawn within like the first meter of those weirs because that's where all the gravel is at so returning gravel to those rivers is is one of the biggest things that's going to help out those those eggs just because right now there's a lot of bedrock bottom that isn't the best for for eggs yes again swept away and they're also completely exposed to predators if it's an egg, I mean, I imagine most fish in those rivers or lakes uh, are have the easy chance of picking out 
salmon eggs if they're not covered or protected at all. As well as it's not just salmon that spawn there, uh, like Pacific lamprey, which is a, a prey of salmon. Uh, everything wants that gravel that's gone away. Now, the the part that's interesting is it's like, well, why don't we just dump gravel? Well, it's, you can't dump the gravel because you, you still have that current. So we need to return some of the meandering to the river and slow down that current enough to where it, that gravel starts building up naturally. But you can't slow down the current too much because then that heats up the water. So there's a, there's a balance in there. Yep, definitely trying to hit the throttle of trying to find that perfect zone. And I also know for, since it's unprotected and having high flows, with all that being bedrock, there's also less vegetation in there. So when the fish get a little bit bigger, less food and also less protection and shelter. Once If there's no gravel to help hold in certain plants or simply, you know, trees that might have fell that are stuck in there to help create, like Nick said, little ways to slow down the current in the river if all that's gone and just everything's slipping down and sliding down it creates so many problems not just for salmon but for multiple species yeah and then again due to uh, like logging practice practices of the past a lot of our riparian management areas so for which is basically just a, a fancy way to say streamside stream banks it's now taken up by hardwoods uh, your alders maples and your alders maples they don't provide as much shade as your conifers do and you can slowly see the conifers coming back because that's how secession works you're it's supposed to be a a you're supposed to have your cedars and your pines and your your firs in there um but right now it's just a lot of hardwoods and they don't provide as much shade relief and so you'll see some people cutting down like the stream bank and replanting cedars. So the problem is, where do you want to find that level, right? Of if you cut down your, is getting rid of some shade and replacing with better shade, but that's not going to be mature for another like 10 years, or at least start providing shade for 10 years. Is that what you want to do? Or do you want to stick with the somewhat shade to imperpetuity? And because Rivers are warmer now than they have been in the past, partly because, like we talked about, with the with the getting rid of the stream bank from you know flowing all those logs downriver, and I cannot stress enough how that is not done anymore. Um, for those of you who don't know, I work in the forest products industry, and even people who live on the river have asked me if we still flow logs down the river when they would literally have to see those logs go by them. I would imagine, but. Uh, so that's that died out a long time ago but you can still see the scars from it so rivers today at least in oregon that i'm familiar with they're a lot wider than they used to be rivers used to be a lot narrower and a lot deeper they'd have these cooler currents running underneath more faster moving water which is better habitat for fish which we don't have because everything kind of got scraped away so now we're kind of building it back up i think this is important to note because it not just affects eggs but affects all life cycles for the salmon is uh, the pollution that's going into those areas. So certain chemicals have been shown to kind of ruin the eggs. It makes kind of the eggs or sperm uh, sterile. That and with no ground, it's 
not really great. And also the high heat, which I imagine we'll talk about later in the podcast on how uh, heat affects salmon, like Nick was saying, deeper rivers. Since it's now more shallow rivers, the heat has a, lowers the chance of this egg surviving in those areas and blooming into more salmon. Yep. And so all of that makes it hard for the, the eggs to hatch, and even it makes it hard for the fry too, because as the fry mature, they kind of spread out, and as they get bigger, they need more space themselves, which is hard because there's less space for rivers now, mostly because of uh, where humans want to live. I mean, everyone wants to live right next to the river, so we turn, and that's also prime agricultural ground, especially if you look at like the Willamette Valley. We don't really have floodplains like we used to, because everything's built up berms to for cow pastures and stuff like that. And so, and they're doing restoration in certain places to restore that, to restore all that. But it's not, uh, it's not the giant floodplain it used to that you, you have more space for fish to spread out. You can have more fish. So, and a lot of this stuff is, I've heard it argued both ways, but I've heard argued that one of the big limiting factors is the lack of habitat in the beginning of their life stages so because there's we don't have the large floodplains that they can breed in or that they can uh, eat in run around and not be you know right next to each other rubbing on each other being aggressive chasing each other away that we can dump all these fish in but until they have enough resources in the stream to provide for them not only insects and stuff to eat but also actual space you can't improve the population i don't know if that's completely true but i would say uh, that is a huge impact of if you're starting out the gate you're fresh born and you have everything against you it's kind of hard to survive so i definitely see that point but i think it's a multi-variable problem if that makes i agree sense. i'm just telling you what i heard this is uh there's a guy who came yeah there's the a guy messenger. who came to town and he was doing a research and on some land uh, looking at the effect of weirs on salmon and steelhead and uh, lampreys and he was talking about it and that that was his uh his argument now to be fair that would also allow him to go and do, conduct more research so I, well i don't I, was he just saying it so he could do more studies i don't know um but you can definitely see it you can see there's areas where uh we own or i work for a timber company that you can see uh, it actually does flood, and then you'll have like a, a, neighbor, a pasture next door that's been built up, so it is up out of the floodplain. And you can, uh, at least for steelhead season, steelhead by me spawn in the winter, they'll come straight up into farmer's fields that do flood. And uh, you can see them swimming around in like cow pasture. Interesting, interesting. Um, also, going back to the chemicals, with different invasive species affecting that area, we do different methods to get rid of that because, God, invasive species, I think, cover the entire world in some form or matter. Uh, different agriculture, different uh, crops, different livestock produce different problems for the salmon. Just wanted to point that out there. Yeah, um, so one of my... You could call it home rivers, the Smith River. No, not that Smith River, the Oregon Smith River. 
There's a pretty famous Smith River in California. That's not the one I'm talking about. We have a, if you just drive up it, you'll just see the blackberries taking over all the habitat in the beginning. And basically they're just encroaching on the, on the stream side, which is normally where a lot of the fry would hang out and they can't go in there now. So it's reducing their habitat that way. Then another home river, you have the Umqua. And that was where in, uh, I want to say 67, there is a hatchery of for smallmouth bass that flooded it in a tsunami and released smallmouth bass into the river. And they are also eating all these salmon uh, fry and stuff like that. So and eggs are pretty aggressive because, well, they're they're bass. So those, those are just the two I know about. I'm sh- sure there's a lot more. And it, again, it's not just invasives that are everything eats these salmon. So just your normal trout are going to eat these. You know, your crayfish are trying to eat the eggs. I mean, ducks. I know I saw ducks were a huge part of eating salmon eggs. Yeah. So everything wants to eat these little fish. The salmon can't catch a break. I mean, even even if they make it somehow through the eggs, having bear shelter, they got, don't have really any shelter because of the invasive species and the little hatcheries where they go through. But just for giggles, once they make it above that, well, now they got to start heading towards the ocean. And the journey down is almost as dangerous as danger is uh, going back up. But to make it out all that into a transition zone of kind of adjusting your body from salt water to fresh water, which I did saw was interesting. Not all salmon survive that transition. It's a higher percentage that do survive, but some salmon rush it and try to force themselves in salt water because predator chasing them don't, or some X round reason. And that kind of shocks the system and they die. But to make it out into the ocean, I imagine there's a lot of and the opening for that river into the ocean. I imagine there's gotta be a lot of predators and if we're in the North Pacific, orcas are a big one. As soon as they get, as soon as they get out of the river, they're out of the pan and into the fire, Nick. That's for sure. No, oh, yeah. Well, even when they're in the bays and the estuaries, you're still getting chased around by your your rockfish and your lingcod that are living in the bay and everything else there. And then, yeah, once they get out into the the real world, then you got all sorts of fish that are trying. You got whales are a big one. I'm sure, sharks. Uh, seals, sea lions, otters, or sea, yeah, all of the pinnipeds, walruses, everything is trying to eat those salmon. <laughs> humans. Yeah, humans. We do, we do love our salmon. But this is where I kind of want to introduce a little bit of the unnatural side, if you don't mind. Uh, so these are all the natural problems. We, we humans like salmon. I can't blame you. I, Nick, I, I, I'm guilty to blame. I love salmon. I think it tastes delicious. And to counteract all these variables that's decreasing the salmon population, we started farming them. And a big part of it is once they make it into the ocean, we do this thing called open net hatcheries, which are pretty much just sealed off netting areas for the salmon to roam around, but not free range, if that makes sense. And that causes its whole other issues. I'm not sure if you want to go down that avenue yet or keep going on the life cycle of the natural salmon. Nope, I'm uh, I'm good till we start coming back into the, the freshwater. So let's talk about what's going on out in the salt. So hatcheries are all across the world from Japan, Norway, Ireland, America. We love our salmon. We want to increase this population of salmon so we can keep eating salmon. But this way that method we're doing it has 
more negative side effects than positive side effects. So with salmon in hatcheries, they tend to be a bit smaller, which is kind of obvious. If you have less room to roam, a little bit more docile, they tend to be smaller. Uh, a huge problem is also algae. Uh, in 2019, 8 million salmon were killed by algae bloom in Norway. A And also, we mentioned earlier, sea, sea fleas. Yeah, sorry, sea lice. Those are probably one of the biggest issues I saw with salmon. And when you have salmon in a contained area where they don't really have free roam, it increases diseases, increases viruses spreading, and lice spreading. Now, these sea lice will are parasites. They literally eat the salmon while it's alive and causes it to be infected opens up wounds thus if it's open in the free range and not in hatcheries it i mean if you smell blood in the water other fish are going to come and try to eat it these lice are i did not know this was such a big issue but sea lice are nasty creatures that eat the flesh off the bone while you're still alive and that it, it i find it quite disturbing i actually don't implore any of you to look it up what it sea lice look like what they do to a salmon but majority of the salmon are produced for eating in these hatcheries. And again, being tightly packed causes more de- uh, diseases. Well, the diseases don't just affect the salmon too. Since the salmon are in a closed area and, you know, spreading from one salmon to another, it also increases the issues with the local water because water is not stagnant, especially if you're in the ocean. So all these diseases, these lice anything that's happening with the salmon gets flown into the other parts of the local water now might be the algae bloom the algae might be spread more they might be the lice might lice might be spread more all these factors start affecting the local environmental impact not just the salmon uh, lifespans but I, I didn't find any statistics on it but from what i could tell the amount of sea lice is increasing and the amount of salmon getting kind of weaker and more docile because they're in captivity is also increasing. Uh, I believe it was in the northeast of the United States. A bunch of salmon got released accidentally by because uh, of a, due to a storm. And pretty much all those salmon got destroyed. Uh, they had no natural fighting instinct because they were born hatcheries. They did not know predators. They didn't have that natural instinct anymore. It kind of got bred out of them so to so as soon as they get really- to give you an example of how that works so in a hatchery these fish they eat basically pellets you know like cat food dog food pellets like you'd feed a normal fish in a container and this this practice has gone away now but this is what would happen in the past someone would walk up and they'd throw the pellets and all the fish would come up and rise eat the pellets and that got the fish every time they see a shadow to come up and you know it's dinner time when you see a shadow out in the wilderness, it's usually something that wants to eat you, most likely a bird. And so a bird would fly over this river and all these hatchery fish would be like, oh, fuck, yeah, time to eat and just get destroyed because they had been trained throughout their whole lives to think that shadows mean food when in they should be taught that shadows mean death. And now... Surprise! Now that that practice has gone away, they, they've gotten rid of that because they figured that out pretty quick. But yeah, so just little stuff like that, that uh, they never learned in captivity. Yeah. And I, we were mentioning the death factors of salmon, how it's a hard life to be a salmon, even born out of the gate and things are already trying to kill you or you're not even born yet. Things are trying to kill you. 
It's the same with the hatcheries. In 2019, about 20% of the salmon died in the farming hatcheries. That's a large population of your livestock to die off. 20%? That seems really high, Nick. Yeah, that's a a pretty big number. Almost a quarter. Yeah, and again, the same factors that affect wild salmon also affect hatchery salmon. But hatchery salmon, I think, might have more problems because of the close encounters. And, well, they don't have to deal with orcas because orcas do love salmon and polar bears and grizzly bears and sea lions and everything loves salmon so they have a hard time but uh another problem which hatcheries uh, both hatcheries have and wild salmon which i think me and nick will probably have a bit discussion on is temperature we mentioned earlier how salmon like colder temperatures well and you're in hatchery some of these hatcheries are in the ocean they're not inland so there are inland hatcheries i want to point that out uh, I believe it's Canada. A couple of the islands they started doing inland hatcheries. I don't sure. I'm not sure if there's anywhere else in the world that's doing that. But I know most hatcheries are ocean or sea based, and this ocean sea based, as the water temperatures rise due to climate change, due to human, due to humans and glaciers melting, and all sorts of reasons, makes it harder for the salmon to produce to simply just live. They do not thrive in warm waters well these warm waters make more fish die more fish die means more disease more disease in these close quarters means more it's a vicious cycle over and over again and these colder waters are such a necessity it's like having shade for us on a hot day it's just a necessity for these fish and currently in the northwest in the united states there's a giant heat wave going on nick i Imagine you know that pain more than I do. Yep. It's, uh, this... I mean, I live on the coast, so when I'm not working, the hottest it's going to be here is like 90 degrees, so feel sorry for me. <laughs> but it'll be, it'll be in the hundreds when I'm inland working, so it's fine. But it's not good for the fish, and so the state puts in protections. So one of the ways that rivers cool down is tributaries. Cooler water comes in from the smaller creeks, and fish swimming up river will cool down at these when where these tributaries enter the main stem of the river, and so they have like a no fishing within two hundred feet of tributaries rule, and that's so that these fish swimming up river can get a break from from the heat, and the fishermen could just sit at the mouth of a tributary and just kill fish all day because that's really the only places they're trying to be is is in the colder water. Uh, I think it's also important to note with this current heat wave that's happening in 2021 uh, is affecting salmon more than we previously thought. There are numerous of dead salmon popping up simply due to heat exhaustion. The numbers are still uncertain because we're still in the summer months, but I have seen scientists trying to collect and study that data. It's It's been a bad year for salmon, so that's for sure. Yep, and uh, that's one of the, the interesting things about salmon population was the runs so it's it's kind of like uh cicadas right like you come back every seven years because the the fish that were fry and smolt last year they're not coming back to spawn that next year but in alaska some of the largest runs of pinks have coincided with some of the highest temperatures now that's probably because seven years ago or however long ago that they're spawning was 
colder, so they had more success, but it's just kind of interesting how that works out. Yeah, it is also interesting how the cycle is not yearly. I find that very strange that it's every two years, nine years, or somewhere in between. It's. I wonder if how evolutionary-wise that came up with to have yearly breaks in between your breeding season. I mean, I wonder how evolutionary-wise it became that, oh, the best way to propagate the species is to swim up into the freshwater hundreds of miles, spawn there, live there, and then come out into the salt water for food. Like, yeah, there's a lot of food out in the salt, but there's a lot of predators. And it's probably not enough. You couldn't have a native salmon population along with like a native trout population. So they could just be the fish that got kicked out of everywhere else. But it's amazing that that is their reproductive system. Like that, that's how that species decide, like evolutionary wise decided that this is how this species will survive and to be fair it has worked yeah it has worked and i'll be honest i can't think of any other species of any animal that does anything as drastic or dynamic as the salmon does for like hey we live in this nice area maybe we should adapt to that nah we're gonna go out into the ocean but you also brought up the point of different types of salmon and there are a lot of types of salmon and I'm not quite sure how many types there are. It seems like it's a big debate. I'm not sure why it's a big debate. I've seen everything from 7 to like 12 different types of salmon. And I'm not quite sure who's right. So the reason you're seeing this 7 to 12 different types of salmon is some people want to categorize subspecies as their own species, as its own species. And some people want to lump it and say, well, well just because this river has its own distinctive genetic code it's very clearly under this you know whatever salmon but if you say but if you split it apart and like oh no this is its own distinct species well now you have an a species that has an even lower population number so it becomes an increased uh target for funding because your your population went from whatever you know the total say like coho salmon population to oh just this specific river of cohos is its own subset it's its own species so now it's even more endangered so you're going to get more funding i just thought of a very dark comedic almost animated moment i imagine this has had to happen at least once that a, a grizzly bear accidentally came across a hatchery and just saw a bucket full of salmon just sitting there that had to be the grizzly bear's best day ever. Sorry, that I got I, I for some reason got on the idea of a grizzly bear eating salmon because again, that's the salmon run going back up. Grizzly bears just waiting with their mouths open and quite literally catching catching salmon is so fascinating to how nature just works. Yeah, and it's, I mean, that's uh speaking of how nature works, that's how humans work. Everything needs to be categorized, right? Like. Everything needs to be put in a category, and where we draw those lines is is up for debate. And so people can argue at what percentage of species does it become a new species, So, and uh, what does it just become like a subspecies. So, for example, uh, like Douglas fir is a tree that grows on the coastal, like Pacific coast, and kind of the inland northwest, so your, your inner mountain, Idaho, and they're two subspecies. They're genetically different, but they share enough 
genetic material to be the same species. But at some point, that's going to change. Now, who makes that call? Some people could probably argue for the change now. Some people could argue for later. So I think that's more of a, a personal preference of where you want to make that change. But I think when you're dealing with like such a small number, like I think seven species is it's pretty uh it's pretty distinct. I mean, you, you can look at them and you can say, okay, this is this kind of salmon. This is this kind of salmon. Yes, phenotype doesn't how it looks isn't everything, but I don't know. It, I don't I don't like splitting things up just for the sake of splitting things up. I love how we're dealing with one of your favorite subjects, fishing, and you somehow still bring it to trees. Well, it's all about trees, isn't it? God damn it. No. It's habitat. <laughs> you, you son of a bitch. You can't mention salmon in a debate and at least not talk about deforestation. It's one of the first things people bring up. Deforestation, dams, and pollution. Well... Before we get to dams and pollution, I also want to make note of the heating of the water due to many factors uh, also leads to more algae blooms. More algae blooms also lead to more salmon deaths. And if they're in a concentrated area, such as a hatchery, it's going to be a bad time. Like I, like I said, in 2019, 8 million salmon were killed by an algae bloom in just Norway. That's That's so much food for people. That's just gone. Let's see, 8 million salmon, so they probably weighed, say, an average of 10 pounds. Say, be, get 5 pounds of meat off of them, so 5 times 8 million, 40 million pounds of meat were lost right there. And that's, not, not all those salmon are going to be eaten, but... That's also, that salmon is so nutrient-rich, too. Like, the amount of oil, like fish oil you can get from salmon, uh, the vitamins you can get from it, it salmon's... Salmon is good eaten for a reason because it's it's high in protein, nutrients, and all that's just gone because of something out of people's control. Yep. And uh, before we get way too far away, we're already pretty far away, but when you were looking up sea lice, did you see how they treat the sea lice? I did not. Honestly, I was kind of disgusted on how uh, sea lice interacted with the salmon that I kind of got disturbed and i didn't really want to deal with that do you know by chance well so there there's a few different ways one trying to get the salmon deeper into colder water i guess where there's less sea lice but them and then the other way is they're trying to use like jets the salmon can swim through like these jets that'll push the sea lice off but the most effective way is they brought in two different species of fish that eat the sea lice I did see that. I did see the uh, introduction of other fe- uh, fish to eat the pest. Uh, the pest. And the problem with that is they were so efficient that they wanted to get more of those fish, and now those fish are uh, in danger of their population because they were taking them from the wild. But most places are setting up farms to farm those fish to eat the sea lice so they don't have to take from the environment because most of the people who got into fish farming got into it so as not to deplete the native population of salmon so they're they're trying to do their best but it's it's a new kind of technology so you know give give them a break a little bit well it's a new kind of problem if i imagine i don't remember sea lice being this big of an issue in years past i imagine for in this last decade is when sea lice kind of went on an uptick yeah i don't i don't i don't know I haven't really checked, but I don't remember hearing 
too many stories about sea lice from the older fishermen. But I'm kind of happy using... I did see the, the smaller fish, of which I cannot remember the name for the life of me, trying to eat them. Aw- There's a, a wrasse and a lumpfish. Wrasse and a lumpfish. Well, I, you know me, Nick. I'm kind of a fan of natural ways and ways that kind of solve themselves. So if you have a fish that eats the, the, the lice, keeps the lice population down, which keeps the salmon population up, you keep that cycle going, it seems like a win-win. But another uh, way we could, you know, get a little bit easier on the salmon is stop polluting so much, people. The amount of plastic that ends up in rivers is disgusting. The amount of chemicals ending up in rivers is disgusting. Please stop. The amount of humans' influence on the salmon population is huge. I would say we are probably having the biggest impact on the salmon population than anything else. And I'm and I'm con- talking about current, from the 1980s to now, population. Do you think the the salmon are also affected by meth? Like I like trout. Oh my god! Uh, if you haven't heard the episode on meth trout, I recommend go checking that out. But salmon already so jacked up and so muscular, already still swimming. Could you imagine how fast a salmon on meth would swim? Yeah. Do you have on the top of your head, I have to find it, how fast salmon can swim? Because it's like, it's over 30 miles an hour. I can't remember. I do not have on the top of my head. Um, I think if I remember correctly, it's like 28. I think it's a little bit below 30, but still let's just let's just we'll just round it down to even 25 miles per hour that's still so fast so 1.7 to 3.1 feet a second yeah so so that's that's about 28 30 miles per hour that's uh that's pretty good for something that's like a foot and a half to two feet (laughs) twice its body length in a second that's that's incredible keep in mind this is swimming against a current. So they have more resistance than we have. God, us human bodies, we're, we're so weak and meager compared to everything else in the animal kingdom. It's amazing how far we've made it just because of our bodies. But, you know, it's one thing that salmon can't overcome, no matter how strong of uh, swimmers they are. Dams. It's salmon. Why do I feel like there's about to be a lot of puns? Uh, I will try to behave, but no promises. Uh, dams tend to dam up the river and make it really hard for salmon to, well, make it to their breeding grounds. Uh, there's a couple, I mean, in the Northwest, which is kind of a big area for salmon fishing and just salmon fish uh, hatcheries in general, there are four major dams in Washington that has caused the wild salmon population to fall by 90%. That, just four dams. If, I mean... If you, they can't get to their breeding grounds or they can't get to the natural cycle, if they're stuck, they're quite literally against going siege against a wall, they are slamming into the walls and simply cannot make it, it's going to kill off their population. And it's not, I don't know, can, Nick, you might be able to know this, can salmon, if they lose their hatchery grounds, form new ones? Uh, I don't know. So I know some uh, tire out trying to swim you know, up over the dam. They have fish ladders, and some of the fish go up that. But the problem is the they follow the main stem of the current, and so the turbines push out more current than the fish ladder, so it attracts more of the fish because they think that's where the main stem of the river is. And so some 
some dams have turbines that the fish can swim through where most don't just uh i don't know don't don't have money to upgrade i, I don't really know how how that works but uh so if they don't then you know salmon get chopped up i've seen anywhere from it's hard to get a rough number i think it one depends on the dam depends on like the outflow of the fish ladder the outflow of the turbines but anywhere from 14 percent of fish make it up the fit make it to the fish ladder to like 50 percent or something like it's it really depends i think on on the dam of how many fish make it to the fish ladder which is basically just a structure that allows the fish to swim around the dam for those who don't know what we're talking about it's kind of like a exit off a highway for the salmon to simply go around the dam and watching some videos when researching this it sometimes works and works to a point but it's not completely effective the amount of times i saw salmon they were just bucking and flying into the walls and that would naturally knock each other out and onto the land so they would die and these fish ladders these salmon ladders are not exactly the widest widest pathways possible at least comparatively to the river that they would normally be swimming up now this has caused many issues uh both politically both for the population of salmon and yeah uh and for people's livelihood so just a quick one because i'm more interested on how to help the salmon and what the problems are facing the salmon uh a lot of native american tribes are losing a major source of their food and culture because they can't get the salmon because of these dams that are popping up in multiple locations. Uh, many people don't want to remove the dams, even though most evidence for majority of the dams show that removing these dams would help increase the salmon population simply because people don't want to give up their electricity. Don't really blame them for that because dams, hydro dams specifically, are pretty efficient and pretty green overall. But it's killing the also there's a a lot of them are like a lock system to get boats further inland for those of you who don't know idaho is not a landlocked state you can get from the ocean to the state of idaho and uh going through the uh, columbia you can get to lewiston and pretty much all of the grain that's harvested in uh northern idaho is, is sent out down the river on those barges goes to china wherever it's going and that would uh chain that would removing removal of the dam would have cause all that to be trucked which would be a higher cost of all those farmers so it's not going to be a politically expedient uh decision to make yeah but they are being bills brought to congresses and committees about removing the dams i know for the columbia river more than 40 percent of the spawning habitat for salmon i believe it's the oh god coken salmon Kokanee? Kokanee salmon, I think, I believe it's that Pacific salmon, is blocked off by the dams on the Columbian River. That's nearly half your breeding grounds gone. Granted, it's under half, but still, that's a 40% of your breeding population, breeding areas gone because of dams. Uh, you risk losing your entire fishing population, which, uh, for those who don't know, salmon is a huge international industry. It produces tons and tons of millions. Uh, I believe for United States, it reproduced something, I think it was $17 billion last year. Something something ridiculous-wise because of jobs, fishing tours, fishing equipment, uh, the actual meat and uh, byproduct of salmon, 
the fish oil it salmon generates lots of money for these areas so if the salmon start decreasing everything else around it starts decreasing yeah so uh so the salmon they come up and they die in, in large numbers and basically they just provide when they die after their breeding those bodies because there's so many of them provide nutrients for all the large animals and birds that will eat them but they also decompose and put a lot back into that area and so much so that a lot of different areas count on those salmon coming back and when they don't come back they can tip different uh you know parts of the ecosystem out of whack yes it's a it's a tree it's oh god what's it called nick uh what's the ecosystem called the the tree of life uh i think you're talking about biological magnification where some goes whatever gets eaten goes higher up yeah i was trying to think of the layman term or a food web food web thank you thank you yeah the i would say in the food web in the food web salmon plays such a huge role for multitude of species i I, they're almost a keystone species for large large portions of the land in where salmon are found like i said all across the world so to lose that it's gonna mess up the entire food web right it's like so if you have a population of bears in alaska that relies on salmon coming back and eating the salmon i mean there's actually uh wolves who solely rely on salmon or like 80 percent rely on the salmon well if those salmon don't come back they have to find something else to eat so they have to go somewhere else yes um i'm not sure if you want to go into solutions because i do have an interesting solution about dams which i think can make majority of the people happy um i have a few more things that are killing the salmon as they come upstream so for those of you who aren't from the uh pacific northwest You've probably seen them in uh, San Francisco making all sorts of noises, but sea lions put a hurt on the salmon population. Um, seals and sea lions can eat f- or eat around 50 pounds of fish a day. Holy crap. Well, they are big boys. Yeah, and there's a lot of them. And they've been on the protected species list, so they've basically just been flourishing. Their numbers are really high right now, and... Is it time to get the clubs? Uh, they're talking about it, uh, so probably won't ever happen. But something needs to be needs to be done. There, the study I saw said that the sea lions in 1998 were responsible for eating 14 percent of salmon coming upriver, and that's when sea lions were like endangered, and now they're like four or five times that population size, I imagine. So. I don't know what they're, the percentage they're doing now, but they got to be uh, taking some serious bites out of those. You can watch these uh, videos of people fishing for salmon on the Columbia and just they'll re- be fighting this fish, fighting this fish, and then it'll just go slack and just reel in the head of the fish because uh, a seal, sea lion or whatever just came, in, came and ate it. Damn, that, wow, I did not know sea lions were having that large of an impact on the salmon population. I knew they were having... An impact, but I, was, I thought it would be the same impact of killer whales. Little, but you said 14% a few years ago? Yeah, 98. Oh, God, if that was in 98, I, it's got to be, I would say, closer to 30 by now. It's got to say, I would say almost doubled. Oh, I imagine it It has. It's, uh, people don't like them. Well, that's not true. Fishermen don't like them, but everyone else thinks they're cute. 
<laughs> until you see them with their mouths open and eating something alive. Yeah, just bloody, just blood everywhere. They get they're they're uh, they're ornery too. You'll see people like walk on these docks and this fucking walrus mother like I don't even sea lion just comes running at them. They're all they're cute and cuddly till two hundred fifty pounds of blubbers hurtling at you, <laughs> barking. And then for a moment, you know how a salmon feels. Yeah, but uh, salmon's have it such a hard life. I mean, let's just go, let's just do a quick recap of. They might be able to spawn because they're at bedrock. They let's just say they do somehow make it. They don't get eaten as eggs by ducks and smaller fish. They now have to somehow get enough nutrients and food to grow enough big, which you have invasive species covering up areas which you would normally hunt and hide in, and you have now other invasive species or just native species eating you. Then you have to try to make it down river into areas and then adjust to salt water where there are more species to eat you. Make it out to the ocean, somehow swim past the sea lions and killer whales, all the sharks, all the bigger fish, survive, only to come back to do the same thing again, but now you have to deal with bears who know it's a giant salmon run or eagles as a big salmon run, fishermen trying to get you. It dams blocking your way. They might have added a new dam in there so you can't get out. You can't get up where you were supposed to go. It's a hard life to be a salmon. And then at the end of it, you breed and die. Yep. And don't forget, you got a lot of people fishing for them too. Yes, yes. That is true. It's a, God, I do not envy salmon at all. Yep. And there's a, there's a lot of controversy over fishing for salmon because people don't want anyone fishing for salmon because we talked about their populations declining. And so you have, you know, commercial fishermen fishing in the ocean. You have sport fishermen fishing off their boats. You have the tribe fishing with their uh, nets. And everyone is mad at the other one. You know, sport fishermen say, say the tribe and their nets are taking all the salmon and the commercial fishermen are taking the salmon. Commercial fishermen say that the tribe and the sport fishermen are taking the salmon and vice versa. It all goes around. Uh, and yeah, to point out how the salmon population is decreasing, there are talks that within the end of this decade, salmon, I think it's the Pacific or it's the king salmon, might enter the endangered list. So salmons are, spe- at least certain species are certainly on decline, but as a whole, they're also all declining. So you respect salmon and tr- and try not to screw up and, again, don't overfish, don't overpopulate. Oh, we didn't even talk about overfishing. I imagine, I don't think it's happening so much more in the Western world, um, or I, I could be mistaken, but some people are mass producing fishing. Like for those in, I think it's Alaska, you're allowed, I think, seven or eight salmon. I can't quite remember for their season on how many, how many tags you can get. That number might significantly go down, and there's always going to be people who abuse that system and do not follow that system and overfish, which has also significantly decreased the population of salmon. Yeah, I mean that's it's hard because it sucks to uh, to be born right now and just listen to all these people talk about how much salmon there used to be in steelhead. They talk about fishing off the. Uh, uh, the chip plant here in Coos Bay or off the boardwalk, and you could just see the salmon like filling up the bay 
and now you, you definitely cannot <laughs> see the salmon filling up the bay. Talk about throwing out a line and getting a fish every third cast. And now Steelhead's referred to as the fish of a thousand casts. So the mighty has it's, fallen. Uh, it's kind of declined. Yeah. But everyone taught back here, or not back here, here where I'm at right now. Uh, it's not uncommon for people to talk about, you know, catching a salmon, feeding their family for like a day or two off that one fish. And that used to kind of be like the way of life for a lot of people. And so it's it's a tradition of, of catching those salmon. They've been such a staple of the culture out here that a lot of people don't want to give them up for that reason, but also just because you got tourism dollars, people come in to fish for salmon, you get people you know, spend all, buy their licenses. It's a, it's a huge industry just fishing for them. Even catch and release fisheries generate a lot of money. It is an important population for many things, not just for food, but for people's livelihood. Uh, yes, traditions of eating, but also, like you said, Nick, just the tourism dollars, I imagine for a lot of smaller towns where this fishing is held, that's how the town kind of lives and dies. Yep. I mean, you can see it in, uh, in salmon season or steelhead season. All the shitty motels, they'll have uh, all the boats parked out front and be like, welcome fishermen. But I think we covered most of the reasons why salmon are decreasing, which are unfortunately plentiful. Only took us an hour to get here. (laughs) I want to somehow transition a little bit more happier of possible solutions because they're not on the endangered species yet. And I think there are some good ways to fix and make it easier for the salmon and i want to start with i think is the most controversial one which is dams i imagine it's it is possible from an engineering standpoint to do half a dam so instead of going across the entire river only do half of it you would still generate power now these dams are draining are creating massive amounts of power the half a dam would not probably power most of these towns but you could su- you could add a second half down dam downstream, so have like an S turn for your river where the dams get the power, but it still creates a channel for these salmon to come through. That way, you don't need a, a salmon ladder anymore. It's also getting more water through, and also keeps the water cooler. I, it seems like that would solve many issues, and I think that's a kind of a compromise all around. And I was wondering about your opinion on it, Nick. Yeah, I mean that. The the problem with that, I'm guessing, is uh, I don't I don't know if you're going to be able to get boats up that river. I, do you know that? I guess I'm asking you. Can you still get boats up that river? Uh, probably not the current boats. It's not that way. No. Um, like not a barge. No. It. You probably would have to add a railway nearby, or use more smaller boats with larger torque to navigate the waters. Um, you would also then have the factor of, of a boat runs into a hydro dam, which would be bad. That would create many issues there. So the shipping industry might have to adapt a bit, but it would be easier to send the ships down and maybe use a different river that doesn't have salmon to bring them back up and just complete the cycle by digging a trench through. So you have your where the salmon run and you make a either man-made river or a river that salmon aren't really flowing through and use those to navigate up. And then the same ones that salmon go up, you navigate down with. 
does that make sense yeah i I get what you're saying um i I don't think you're gonna that's there's not a lot of large rivers that salmon don't run through is kind of a problem we made the panama canal god damn it we can make another (laughs) that's true it's uh it's a little bit more a little bit harder terrain out here than uh in Panama, less malaria. <laughs> Damn it! But, I was gonna make a malaria joke there, <laughs> but uh, but a little bit more mountains. Um, so here's the, the other problem with dams: is removing a dam, which is exactly the cause of uh, a lot of the stream failures that we're seeing now. Is you had a big dam and then you brought it down, so you'd have to slowly like year after year take increments off the dam to start restoring it to its normal capacity and the other problem there is there's a lot of communities that are built down from those dams that would then be flood flooded in floodplains which would you'd have to relocate them down yeah take down all those buildings all those it's it's not as easy just demolishing all those buildings keeping all that runoff from getting into the river taking all the chemical spills for those of you who don't know portland is like the mega site or mega fun it's one of the most hazardous uh soils <laughs> in the united states the it's a big port a lot of big industries work there went out of business a super fund it has like the most super funds per mile in in portland so i'm sure there's super fun sites up and down the Columbia. So you got to refit all those before you dump all those heavy metals back into the water or not dump, but if they get eroded back into the water. So it's not just tearing down the dam. It's basically, you're going to need like, I imagine a, um, like a new deal kind of project and just employ anyone who doesn't have a job and, uh, just get to work and then pay those people whose house, who's own those properties to move their, their businesses and their houses somewhere else, try and convince them that it's going to be so much better. It's a, it's a pretty big cost. Now I know what you're saying. I'm just saying like, there's a lot of costs that go into that, that it's, it's going to have to have federal dollars for helping out just a small area. People aren't going to like it. Listen, I didn't say it was a perfect plan, but I just say it is a compromise plan to try to make everyone happy. And this is the way I see it makes most people happy. You still get your electricity through hydro dams, but it allows now salmon to climb. Because I think we both agree, Nick, that salmon are heavily affected by dams in a negative way. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty obvious that that's a that's a problem. That's one of the it's definitely a constriction. And I think that yeah and i don't see it seems like it would be easier to make to retrofit all those dams to allow the salmon to be able to swim through them i just saw making half a dam you get to keep some of the infrastructure you still get your electricity because there's no way people are giving up their electricity to for the fish i i can't see that happening and so that way you get to keep the some of the dam you might have to retrofit it might have to change it might create more jobs that way uh, yes, you might have to relocate people, but fish come back, you still get your electricity, and you don't have to completely remove the dam. That's why it was just a compromise, and it's what I see realistically happening or could happen to solve the dam problem for salmon. Um, so I was looking at this article. So it's uh, fish can swim through the turbines. What's killing them uh, is the pressure change. 
is what it's saying. So you're going from, you know, surface to after uh, the first 15 of feet, that's the equivalent of one atmosphere. So you, that's two atmospheres pushing down on you. And then after 30 feet, it's another atmosphere. Then I think 45 is the third atmosphere. And then I think five atmospheres is like 90 feet. So if you're come up on a dam and you were at 30 feet of water, then you're adding three additional atmospheres and the quick pressure change, I think, is what's what's killing them. So you can't it's it's saying that you can at least the newer turbines that the fish can swim through. That is interesting. I'll have to look into that. I'm I'll be honest, I'm not more familiar I'm more familiar with traditional electrical plants than I am hydro dams. So I'm more than likely wrong, but you know, P V divided by V gets you uh the second P. Uh sorry, boys law. I I learned something in school, uh, but yeah, I to retrofit all the dams. I don't know if that'd be more cost effective to do that than it's just. To have- I feel like that would be more cost effective than paying millions of people buying them a new house. Yeah, but to I imagine to do that kind of infrastructure work on a dam, you're gonna have to blockade the water for a short time so you can work under the water. Or whatever the normal line would be. I've got to imagine they have a way to to work on those on dams without well, completely stopping it. Well, maintenance versus building are two different things, and to retrofit it is kind of like an in between of both fixing and building. So I I'm not I'm not quite sure on how you would do that because that's a dynamic area you're working in. I I, it, you, I you could be right, and I hope you're right, but I. I can see that being so difficult so quickly. And hell, yeah, if we do uh, that... So to to get that data, they basically built like a fake fish and sent it through <laughs> the dam. It had like a camera and pressure sensors and stuff. Though, if we do your idea with the dam that salmon can swim through, we could add water jets in there to help knock off the lice if when they come through. Well, the dams are so high up, by the time they get there, I think the lice are already gone. So the lice die when they get into freshwater. So it's usually just the first 24 hours that they have lice on them in the freshwater. After that, the lice die off. I did not know this. But I don't see us redirecting rivers anytime soon. But speaking with rivers and dams, I can see us adding more gravel or stuff like uh, like that, like we mentioned earlier in the podcast. Or maybe even just trying to dig deeper, tear up that bedrock a little bit. Maybe, Maybe we can use explosives for good for once and just blow up make it the make the river a little deeper yeah um i'm spitballing here i'm throwing out ideas so yeah we so another fun salmon story we've tried to help the salmon before in the 70s we thought part of the problem was oh man we knocked all this shit in the river from logging we got to take all this structure all these rocks and logs out of the river for the salmon well all that did is that really sped up the current got rid of all the all the gravel and made it so that the salmon had nowhere to rest when swimming up river. So now we're slowly putting stuff back into the river, uh, all sorts of places to slow the river down a little bit and build up that gravel bar. And I think what we're going to see is uh, more different states are already doing this. I think Idaho has a law where they're a riparian area for logging. So their stream bank, it's not a set distance. It's just you have to leave a certain distance or a certain amount of trees to provide enough shade 
to allow uh, so that you don't raise the water temperature. Whereas like I think California and Oregon and Washington, it's just like set distances. And so it's more taking a proactive approach, but this is the, this is the problem. So say you want to do, you wanted to uh, return a bunch of river, river stream bed habitat streamside habitat to something more natural an older uh conifer so like evergreen dominated stand or group of trees the way i used to know you have to go in and remove those hardwoods first and so i think we're we're stuck in a like me and mike were just talking about it's no matter what you do someone doesn't want you to do something so if your end objective is oh, I want to go in and I want this to look like it used to be. Well, first you have to get rid of what's there because that's not what's supposed to be there. But people don't want you to do that because they don't want any change to the habitat. But the habitat's not working, then some something needs to change. And it's crazy that we don't have this money because I don't, I don't know what uh, going to the grocery store is like you, Mike, or but in Oregon, you can't go shopping without someone asking you to give money to salmon and hunting foundations and fishing groups everyone donates a certain percentage of money to a salmon it's like where the fuck is all this money going like we're we're we're, so much money is donated to keep these fish alive would it be better if we had one central like salmon charity but the problem is everyone wants to do something different right like some people want to dump more hatchery fish in. Some people want to dump more uh, weirs in. Like everyone's got a different idea of how to save the salmon, but we got to start working together because we're just giving our money to all these different nonprofits, and it doesn't seem like anyone's really making that big of a difference. Whereas if we all started pooling our money, and I'm not saying donate to X nonprofit or whatever, I'm just saying it's insane of how much money actually gets donated to help these fish, and we're not seeing the return back. I feel like it's one of those situations where, yes, I agree with you that we're spread out. We're trying to handle so many problems at once that we can't focus on one. But I also imagine a lot of those charities is not the right word for it. Those organizations also might be educational where they're getting money to raise uh, knowledge and education and uh, speaking on behalf of salmon. Uh, I don't have salmon issues here in Texas. That's kind of not in domain of texas we don't really have salmon so that i don't go to the grocery store and see those situations um but i do think starting with the wild salmon population and then moving on to hatcheries might be a good front to fight at the same time this is kind of contradictory what you just said but since they're so different uh, i believe we can focus on those two at the same time but i agree with you said where Perhaps maybe, you know, we keep trying to fight the sea lions from eating them all, changing the dams. Maybe maybe we choose and pick our battles for the wild salmon and go from there. And with the hatchery, we could do the same of raising certain standards, like certain areas for the salmon to be roaming around, uh, on-land hatcheries so we can control the water and region better so that they can survive and thrive better and have lower risk of diseases. I can see it being war on two fronts on that point, but I, again, agree with you, Nick, on maybe choose one problem and work at it, then switch to the next. Yeah, and that's what I 
tried to do when researching this is like what is what is killing cam salmon the most like what is the number one killer and it turns out it's it's whatever anyone's trying to get you to donate money to it seems like uh it's hard to find a lot of numbers on salmon it's to be fair it's probably hard to to figure that out so if we're getting the sea lions they monitored percentage like they just watched sea lions eat all day for like months and then they counted you know sat in a high tower counted the salmon that went past and someone else counted how many salmon got eaten and uh in uh, san francisco so that's hard because you, you're not going to see every fish that goes past and and you don't have an exact number you know they count they sit and count at the fish ladders how many fish go past but not all the fish go through the fish ladders so it's hard to get accurate numbers but it's it's even harder to figure out what's killing x percentage of salmon it, like no you can't go and survey whales and like how many salmon did you eat this year you can't uh you know, you're not going to sit outside the dam and figure out how many salmon salmon the dam chewed up so it's it's almost hard to figure out where to start true um from what i can see though the biggest factor that's the most obvious factor negatively affecting salmon is us humans due to changing the terrain on uh chemicals pollution and yeah i would say th- just those threes just pollution and overfishing with changing the landscape changing the landscape being dams uh the location where they spawn all that stuff i would say those are the most prevalent of the issues but uh, to quantify how much that's to me not impossible because there's not that much money going into the research of salmon though it might quickly change well actually no there is a lot of money going to salmon we just don't know where it's going to (laughs) uh but it if the salmon keep going the way they are they're going to become endangered and people aren't going to eat salmon anymore and worse comes worse salmon won't even exist in our lifetime anymore yeah, so something that we ran across, and sometimes this happens, a lot of research comes from a certain area. A lot of studies on salmon came from like the late 90s, which I thought was odd, considering it seems like that's all we talk about, uh, at least in the Pacific Northwest, is salmon populations. Yes, I was so surprised. For some reason, in 1989 to like 1997, the study of salmon was the hottest thing ever. I don't know why, but there are so many numbers, papers, and statistics on that time frame, on that decade era of salmon, but not so much. I mean, I found a few in 2006 and eight, and even less in anything above 2017, specifically in the Northwest, just not impossible to find anything current, which is kind of sad because you want to, you think you'd want to keep up on the populations of those species yeah um but so still talking about solutions i think the the small dams is something can definitely be done there for sure but that's going to be a costly and long political battle but i think the easiest to do is start fixing the the little stuff so put more weirs in get more sediment back into the streams uh reducing invasive species population whether that be killing smallmouth or getting rid of blackberry stuff that just individual people can do um reducing pike minnow population just uh it's easier for one person to go out and do something like this than it is to to get the government to go and do something drastic or to get the government to guess to do anything you know you can go and get rid of blackberries on your your property or 
for for nothing. You can go and catch smallmouth all day and get rid of them for the cost of a fishing license, and you might even get dinner by the end of it. So the state can help by making it easier for people to go out and, you know, get rid of those invasive species, provide programs for people to educate them on how to clean up their stream banks, because I'm sure most landowners want to want to help the salmon population, but maybe just don't know how. Or if it's just, you know, educating fishermen about, oh, like this is an invasive that's destroying the salmon population, like get rid of it. You know, if, if they want, if you look in the re- regulations, it just says like no limit, smallmouth bass, main stem umqua. It's doesn't say like these fish are getting rid of salmon, <laughs> knock them out. <laughs> So, I don't know, just little stuff like that that I think is going to... Some more education for the individual. Yeah, but to me, it's easier for people to go out and go fishing for a day and get rid of some of the competitors to salmon, some of the stuff that eats the salmon smolt, salmon eggs, and maybe clean up their property, get rid of invasive species, than it is to remove a dam. Now, I'm not saying that it's never going to happen. I just think it's... If we really started wanting to remove a dam and it was a public opinion was on your side, I think it'd still take 10 to 15 years at the earliest. Yeah. Yeah. I I imagine the red tape for that is no small feat, yet alone the planning for that is no small feat. So, but you can go out and do this. And the state is, in some places, they're providing like incentives. So say you have a bunch of uh, floodplain ground, they're state or feds are willing to trade maybe more or less they try to keep it monetarily even where you can trade for ground somewhere else and they'll try and buy that sensitive habitat from you and then return it back into like a native habitat like try to turn it back into a floodplain provide more habitat for smolts i agree with you but as as big as i am of a drop in the bucket, they all add up. I do think some initiative has to happen on a larger scale. I, I, Not discouraging people to help, but I do think something larger has to happen. I mean, we're, we're having an active discussion on whether we should put certain types of salmon on the endangered list. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? I, <laughs> I think we, we laid it down pretty, pretty clearly. You know, dams are not the best for salmon. They're we need to find ways to fix them, but that and also it's such a, a, a we're we have a whole episode on dams coming up, I think. Uh, yeah, that and also for farming salmon, I think we need to increase our standards on how we handle such populations because again, it's increased in uh, sea lice, it's increased in diseases, and with the warming temperatures, you now have algae problems and just fish overheating. So I think we also need to put in heavy stock into increasing the performance of these hatcheries so they operate the best and make it the cleanest is not the right word. The productive naturalness, I don't know, just kind of spitball in there, but make it better for these fish in the hatcheries because it's not quite up to standards where I would like them yet. Yeah, well, and so, I mean, the ideal scenario, right, like if is everyone stopped eating salmon but that's not gonna happen yeah you shut your heart mouth um so yeah i mean you 
we're going to need to to continue consuming salmon. And so hypothetical scenario, say the U.S. says salmon are endangered, no more eating salmon. Well, guess what? It's an international fisheries. It's not just the United States that fishes for salmon. So it needs to be a, a global consensus, at least in well, let me, all over the world. Well, let me try to... Uh, maybe U.S. and China, or U.S. and Russia, at least. Uh, let me try another compromise here. Maybe we... This is I. I'm not saying this is a solution. I'm just throwing out this here just to get an opinion reaction. Maybe we limit the amount of fish people can catch, so it lowers the wildlife effect that humans have for fishing, and we make it so that people have to shop more at hatcheries, which is not my favorite thing. But I think hatcheries have a higher chance of keeping the population alive than wild. Because while they have a lot more factors to deal with, but granted, with these hatcheries, they have also done... Salmon have a lose-lose situation all around, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, and so that's that's what's logical, right, is reduce the take of how many salmon are being taken each year. But when you make something harder to get, it makes it worth more. Some people are going to want it more the more expensive it gets. Some people might be... Maybe I mean yeah. Some people it's going less people are going to purchase it, but it'll become I think more of like a hot commodity. You know, like uh, people are going to want to show have it like their parties or something to show that they're wealthy kind of thing. Yeah, I <laughs> maybe the salmon are just doomed, Nick. Maybe there is no salvation for these creatures. Yeah, well, it's, so we didn't really talk about this, but I want to talk about it. Is the the discussion over? that the ethics of adding hatchery fish to wild salmon runs and some people think that it's a bad idea because you're diluting the genetics of that run even if you take those genes you you get the genes from salmon that made that run you're putting a disproportionate amount of those genes back into that gene pool you're putting the weaker fish with the strong so and that's um people don't like that but People do like it because it seemed like a good idea at the time, right? So salmon population was going down. The state said, oh, we'll grow some in hatcheries and you can only take these hatchery fish. So people still got to keep hatchery, still got to fish for salmon and keep some of the salmon. Everyone's like, oh, this is a win-win. But now certain people have argued that that's actually destroyed the salmon population more than anything because you're allowing, you're getting rid of genetic diversity and even if it, they do recover, the genes are so diluted because you have so many of the same genetics in there that it's not going to be able to bounce back. It's going through a bottleneck effect of such a reduced population that there's so few genes, they don't have the diversity to continue on. Basically, think uh, like a monarchy. I was just, I was going to make an incest joke there, but I, I was drawing a blank. Uh, it seems... I made one. <laughs> uh, well, it seems like... CRISPR might be here to the rescue once again. Maybe we take some of those wild, strong fish, take their genetics, and breed those into our hatcheries so that way we have more adaptable, more at-ready fish in our hatcheries than than the current generations of constantly being through. Or maybe we do like a, like a switch program where you mix some hatchery fish and you take some wild fish into the hatchery and you keep those gene pools constantly switching around so say fish a a wild fish made it back and you decided to save up it uh collect its eggs and it's like 
you did good. Your kids are going to get an easy life. And then vice versa, your kids had an easy life, we're going to put them in the hard shit. And maybe get the gene mixture with that way. I, I'm just, again, throwing out ideas. This is a complicated one, Nick, and I'm... It's a... There's not an easy solution that pops out to me. No, I mean, if there's an easy solution, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? Because no one has, like, a really good solution. And that's been my most frustrating thing with, the, like, the environmentalist movement on salmon is there's no... Uh, there's no, not compromise, just like, it's, I'm against logging, I'm against dams, it's, it's like, okay, so where do we go from here? Like, I'm against factory fish farming, all right, it, it's not perfect, but how, like, how, what's the solution? Like, no one's throwing out a solution. People are just complaining about things. Is it bad that I, I'm immediately thinking of Captain Obvious from South Park? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, so, I mean... The half dam, the what would you call that? The two dam solution, the half dam solution, the two half dam solution. <laughs> I give half a damn, Nick. That was like, probably that's probably one of the best solutions that I've heard. Like to be fair, I didn't find a lot of solutions. Uh, no one really. There's no like salmonsolutions.com. Mm. I don't know unless you found found a website you weren't telling me no it was me honestly just running my errands listening to music going how on earth do i have how would i solve this do i do this do i do that i mm." and all that's all half dam is the best what i got it would increase the water level because more water is flowing through so it gets deeper colder water you still get power fish can travel now you don't have to build infrastructure for uh fish ladders it was it was the best I got, and I think it made kind of everyone happy. But, well, not everyone happy. It made majority of the people happy. And I'm like, you know what? If it's 60% of the population, that's more than half. It's it's probably not the worst idea ever. Yep. And uh, speaking of dams, something we forgot, or at least I forgot to bring up, dams don't have to mean uh, like a giant, like the Bonneville Power Plant or, or Hydro Dam. It's... Sometimes just a, a, a broken culvert can stop salmon from getting to where they need to go. So just going the state, county, feds, whoever's grounded is going out and just putting in, you know, fish passage culverts, maybe with a, like a, a natural bottom culvert or something like that is going to have a huge effect of letting those fish get past um, wherever they're, they're going. Because there could be obstructions, not, we won't say dams, we'll say obstructions of old you know rusted out culverts and stuff that collapsed and now fish can't get back to their native spawning spawning grounds yeah well it's also like you said nick it's a mountainous area a lot of these regions so landslides are an actual real thing of cutting off rivers oh yeah slides happen all the time out here like uh anywhere from man there's a big slide on some federal ground by us that probably took out i don't know maybe 50 60 trees all the way down in the stream. Now it's it's probably about it's at mile marker seven and a half. So it's about six miles up uh, from the main stem, so near the the headwaters. But yeah, it's probably a, a big effect. And just there's so much, uh, so many roads and stuff out in the woods that just it's impossible for everyone to keep up with with the culverts. It's expensive to put in a natural bottom culvert to put in a 
like a half culvert. They're really cool when they, they do get put in, but it costs a lot of money. So you don't see it that often. We put, we put in one, uh, they put in one University of Idaho that I saw. It's uh, And it's slowly becoming more and more common, but the amount of time and money it's going to take to go to all the landowners out here and replace all their culverts to something that fish can get through. And it's not always like big industrial landowners or the, the forest service. You know, sometimes it's like a guy who's got like 40 acres that his parents have had forever. And he doesn't have enough money to pay to have equipment come in and put in like a brand new culvert. That's just not to, not how it's going to work or build a bridge. I mean, there's like, I don't know, maybe throw out a rough number, 50, 60,000 people who live in the county and we have like 2,000 something bridges. And first off, none of those bridges are tsunami proof. So I don't even know how many are like good for fish salmon habitat. Yeah. And uh, before you get too far away from it, we mentioned culverts, uh, just, just kind of for people who don't know, like uh, imagine a roadway and you have like a stream or river coming through. It's not quite a bridge. It just allows water to pass underneath. That's a culvert in case people didn't know. Yep. Good point. Definitely forgot about that. And yeah, and you never like there's a culvert that goes out from the uh, ties into the Seuslaw and like it just goes up to this farmer's field and you would never think that it's a, a fish culvert, but they get past it all the time. So it's not always the big streams like this stream during the summertime is probably flowing like it's maybe a foot wide, but they, they, the steelhead will come up it during the winter. So, Hey, life sure finds salmon a way. are not far down below. Like it's, it's incredible what, uh, the state layer for streams will have as a salmon or, or steelhead stream. It's, uh, you, you would look at it and be like, there's no way that big fish can swim up that little tiny river. or little. It's not a river, a stream, but they do. Yeah, life always finds a, finds a way. And we unfortunately made it harder in some locations and others for the salmon to come through. Uh, I would say we've, well, I, at least I, I say we definitely did. Uh, we focused mainly on what the salmon problem in North America. But once again, salmon are international animals and having different ways but this is a present issue pressing issue nick and it's one that's in quite literally your backyard so just out of curiosity how how are you feeling about the decline salmon just like personally like are you gonna be sad uh, i imagine you'd be sad if you can't fish them anymore or anything like that um i mean i don't want the salmon population to go away i don't know i see I see a lot of work being done for the salmon and maybe it's just cause I'm, I live here and I see that. And it seems like as we go on, we, we gain a better understanding of the little things that affect the salmon. Like we know more about how just like phytoplankton affects the salmon and not just the, not just the large things like, Oh, this is how much percentage sea lions take. But well, if we don't have this much phytoplankton, we can't support X amount of population. And the more we understand about them, the better we can get them growing. And the population is slowly, you know, I, I think, I think each day we're, they're, we're doing work, you know, every year my company donates like logs that go and help, uh, you know, pr create weirs in the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management. They take those logs, put them in the river, 
for salmon habitat and they study them and it looks i don't know it seems pretty promising from hearing the guys talk about it so i'm i'm pretty hopeful but i'm also an optimistic guy fair enough fair enough but i do i do love how we have all this information but we still can't figure out how many salmon there are or how many salmon we lose to x y and z oh yeah that's a pain <laughs> well nick so, i think there's more to learn i guess is what i was saying too we know this much about this but there's still a lot more to, to know about salmon yeah it's well you can say that about everything you can never know too much and there's well that's not true you can definitely know too much when it's about a good buddy but there's always more to learn and i imagine we miss some solution out there or some topic point that we didn't hear or if anyone's from different country, what they're trying, what their countries are trying to do for salmon, we'd be very interested to hear. And Nick, if they wanted to tell us, where would they be able to tell us? You can find us on YouTube and on Instagram at Backyard Philosophy Podcast. And can they find us on Twitter? You can not find us on Twitter, and I haven't thought of anything funny. Well, I was, <laughs> salmon, even salmon, refused to go upstream on on Twitter. <laughs> Damn, that was a good one. Ha, damn, get it. Oh, fuck. <laughs> but out of curiosity, Nick, uh, what book are you reading? Still reading the 100-year marathon China's secret strategy to replace America as the global superpower by Michael Pillsbury. And uh, I'm reading Tales from the Ant World, Tales from the Ant World by Edward Wilson. And boy, ants are a lot smarter than I like them to be. That's for sure. Yep, you'll have to. I might have to borrow that one. We'll switch. Ooh, I like that idea. And as always, thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening to the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We rarely finish a podcast without missing a point we wanted to bring up, so let us know what we forgot. And if you have a topic you want us to talk about, let us know at Backyard Philosophy on Instagram 